Before we begin, we want to take a moment to thank our sponsors at Audible. Now that the weather's getting nicer, I'm back to reading and listening to books in the park. And with Audible, it's never been easier. Every month, I get one credit to pick any title, plus two Audible originals from a monthly selection. In addition, I get access to news digests from the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and the Washington Post. If you go to audibletrial.com slash ymopodcast, you'll get two free audiobooks on us. Download thousands of titles offline anytime, anywhere. Having trouble deciding what to pick? Audible lets you keep your credits for up to a year. Find your summer read and support your favorite National Film Registry podcast. Once again, that's audibletrial.com slash ymopodcast. Thank you for your support. And now, on with the show. Gentlemen, I want to know, since you guys are both collectors, I want to know something that you've worked hard on to hunt down, but in the end, after all of that effort, it just wasn't worth it. I always go back to it because I'm a Blu-ray collector that about, God, seven, eight years ago uh, when I was trying to get all the John Carpenter movies on Blu-ray and that wasn't uh, possible at the time. There were still empty slots in the collection there. Twilight Time had Christine, but it was out of print, so you could only get it on secondary market, a.k.a. eBay or Amazon. And uh, the price was pretty hefty, about $80, and uh, that was annoying. You know, didn't know if it was ever going to come out again, if uh, whatnot. So one year for my birthday, I said, fuck it. I'm going to buy Christine, $80 on eBay. Boom, great. Now I have Christine, one less John Carpenter movie to have. And then a year later, Universal puts it out on Blu-ray. And then, I don't know, about two years ago, they put it out on 4K Blu-ray. So, you know, I I uh, felt like a big old fucking idiot doing that so uh, i try to stay away from the secondary market with these goddamn blu-rays at this point because you never know or i should say i know because the second i buy them they will become available uh mine uh actually is something uh that happened with you uh kyle this is a story you and i share oh my god um, really yes it's not a whole lot so uh, well, we, do, we, we did hang out a lot once upon a time uh, I mean, I just mean in terms of like collecting and something. Yeah. So I'm well, just curious what this comes so, to. So I uh, sometimes uh, get fixated on weird uh, movies that are too strange to live. And uh, one thing I desperately wanted that all of my local stores sold out of was that um, there was a movie a couple years ago called Nutcracker in the Four Realms. It's very weird. <laughs> I, it's on Disney Plus. I hope folks check it out. Um, and I started collecting merch from this um, unsuccessful blockbuster. And the one thing I desperately, desperately wanted was they had produced a full-on, full-size nutcracker, like a massive uh, nutcracker from Nutcracker in the Four Realms. And I desperately wanted it. And Kyle, you and I were out in, we were in Manhattan one day for, for, I don't remember the reason, but you and I were just bumming around. I don't remember. And somebody, a friend of ours, uh, in fact, past guest of the show, uh, Jeremy Swanton, texts me to tell me that he spotted one of these nutcrackers in the Times Square Disney store, which we were nowhere near. Oh, man, I thought and this was FAO Shorts. No, no, no. FAO Shorts didn't exist then. Um, this is that mid period. So uh, you and I jump on a train and, like, gun it up to the Disney store so I can rush into the store because I'm like, God, I have to get to it. And we get there. We finally get over there, and I, you turned around and pointed out, like, I don't know why I was rushing because it's not like somebody was going to snap it up. But uh, I grabbed it, and now I had this massive box uh, to carry around because this is a tall thing. You know, this is like up to my knee almost. 
uh i think we i think we met up with people for dinner that night and i had i just like put it on the table and people were confused long story short uh all of this questing and all of this mania for this nutcracker uh it currently sits under my desk i have nowhere to put it it's taking up a lot of space and there's absolutely no reason for me to have this so uh yeah kind of just sitting here staring at me uh laughing at me Nutcracker in the Four Realms, full-size Nutcracker. cracking any nuts. Nope. Nope. Has not cracked a single nut. That's a shame. Every year since 1989, the Library of Congress has selected 25 films to add to the National Film Registry. The criteria... The films must be culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. Each week on You're Missing Out, we take a look at one of these films to try and get to the heart of why they were selected and why they still matter. This week, our Houston historian returns to the show. David Bluffband is here for 1948's The Treasure of the Sierra Madre. Our guest today is an actor, writer, and comedian you know from The Chris Gethard Show and The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Uh, he's returning to our show once again. David Bloodband is joining us uh, to talk about the treasure of the Sierra Madre. David, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, thanks so much for having me, guys. This is I'm, I'm excited to talk about Treasure of the Sierra Madre. We are excited to talk about it with you. And uh, as always, I'm always excited to talk about John Houston with another John Houston super fan. So welcome back, David. And I'm excited because this is uh, one of the only episodes, as I learned from Maltese Falcon, where I don't have to do anything. Uh, this is normally on our show. I, I, I can, you know, I, I'm kind of leading the conversation. I have to do a ton of research. But uh, revisiting our, our, our fan favorite Maltese Falcon episode, I did realize that between you and Tom's passions for, for Houston and <laughs> film noir, I truly could get up and walk away. And it's fine. I don't have to. It's 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 a great thing to just to know. I don't have to sit here and and prep heavily and learn like I don't know the biography of Harold Lloyd or something. I know we're we're you know we're rocking and rolling. So thank you for joining. Ted. You were on last season for the Maltese Falcon, yeah, which is great. Our our listeners really enjoyed that one. And I remember you saying on that episode that your favorite Bogart performance was the Treasure of the Sierra Madre. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Hard to argue with that not being the number one choice for the fella. You know, it's unbelievable performance. Uh, and once I knew we were doing season two, I forget what exactly it was. You put out some kind of tweet about going on podcasts or something. And uh, you were one of the first people that, that we reached out to about season two when I uh, responded to your tweet saying, you want to talk to Sierra Madre? Uh, which is a tweet I sent, by the way, from the bar at the Times Square Margaritaville. I don't know oh, why I remember yeah. that specifically, but there was just something about that entire atmosphere that felt very strange. <laughs> um, but uh, and you said yes. I'm so glad you're back. Uh, how have you been? I should start with that. How how, how has? <laughs> oh, no, I, I've been good. I've been uh, okay. You know, as far as um, one can say in these times. But uh, it's mostly been, it's, it, my time has mostly been dedicated to consuming all sorts of media. And working and then taking care of my dog. And that's really it. I like live a pretty hermit hermetic life at the moment. Uh, so I'm just constantly consuming movies. And, and when you asked me to um, if I wanted to talk about this movie, I jumped at the chance because I, I, I do love this film. It's really it's so it's one of my like 
top 100. It's like, it's up there. It's up there for me. And it's so good. And there's so many different things I like about it. And it has elements of things I like in every movie. So without further ado, because uh, I want to make sure we can get fully into this, because I know everybody's got a lot to say on this one. Before we talk about uh, what we like about the film, let's talk about why the registry picked it. Here's what the National Film Registry had to say. John Huston wrote and directed this intense character study of gold fever among an unlikely trio of prospectors, Humphrey Bogart, Tim Holt, and the director's father, Walter Huston. Bogart is outstanding as the pathetic bully Fred C. Dobbs, a tragic hero brought down precisely by his flaws. Walter Houston won an Oscar for Best Supporting Actor as a giddy, grizzled old-timer. Roger Ebert noted the film's pitiless, stark realism that gives the film its honesty and truth. So that is what the National Film Registry had to say. Uh, The only other thing I wanted to note uh, right off the bat is I was watching the documentary they included on the old Warner DVD, because you remember oh, Warner cool. used to pack all those DVDs with special features. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it was documentary about you know, the treasure of Sierra Madre and the finding of the treasure. And it opens with Martin Scorsese talking about uh, a conversation with Ilya Kazan. I think it might have been in front of a class or some other film people. And Ilya Kazan is going on and on complaining about the difficulties of making movies and the state of cinema today and all that. And just sounds real negative. And then Scorsese says he, he looked up and said, but hey. We get to work in the same medium that made the treasure of the Sierra Madre. Isn't that great? <laughs> and I just love that realization. So, sure. uh, yeah. But this is obviously uh, another John Huston film. We should note this is, in a way, both his fourth film and also maybe his second film. Because uh. in between uh, The Maltese Falcon and The Treasure of the Sierra Madre, he did make uh, two other films. One is In This Our Life. Um, and the other is across the Pacific, uh, and this, our life is a novel adaptation, uh, worth checking out for any film history buffs because it reunites Olivia de Havilland and Hattie McDaniel and also features Betty Davis, who was the other person really in contention for Scarlett O'Hara. So you get a little taste of what Gone with the Wind might've been like, uh, otherwise, uh, and across the Pacific is kind of a, a weird, uh, super uh, 1940s racist movie uh, about oh. the Japanese plotting attack on America that was supposed to be oh, Pearl boy. Harbor. Then they actually attacked Pearl Harbor, so they rewrote it. Long story short, Houston didn't complete either of those films because he had to join the Army Signal Corps. So huh. Raul Walsh finished In This Our Life, and Vincent Sherman finished Across the Pacific. So Okay. Treasure of the Sierra Madre is his fourth film on his filmography, but it is the second film that John Huston got to complete start to finish. Okay. Yeah. Um, so wanted to put that out there at the start where this fits into his career and where this fits compared to the film we talked about last time. So, and sure. it's, I mean, a movie he was trying to make for a long time, even before he got to Maltese, cause uh, he got to this book in uh, 35 around mm. then. And um, this was the time where he was doing, he was writing and doing, you know, script doctoring and all that, all that stuff before he was, uh, had so much success as a writer that he was given Maltese Falcon. And then people, other people tried to make it during World War II, but then the producer was trying to like do the best they could to kind of like make sure that nobody did get to it. And like, no, Houston's doing it. We're just rewriting it for him while he's away. And then he comes back from the war. And makes, 
I mean, this is like the ultimate John Huston movie. I mean, I know people could make, you know, arguments about what's their favorite John Huston movie, but for a guy whose whole thing is about focusing on the outcasts and the kind of the degenerates of the world with a loving eye, even in this one, even though he's very, uh, very judgmental in the end on what uh, Dobbs does. This is like the ultimate degenerate guys just being guys kind of story that he could have ever done. And he does it perfectly, you know? Yeah, it is. It does fit his sensibilities maybe more than any other film in his body of work as a director. I think because like John Huston isn't one of those uh, American writer guys who's of the same like, you know, like like the is a he's a contemporary of Hemingway. Yeah. And these like kind of guys. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, he's like one of these like like uh, expat adventurer types who like actually want to live life in order to write about it, uh, and uh, like you know he joined the like he went to Mexico and fought in uh, the 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 Mexican army for like a specific period of time, which is which which is also like very um, makes me think is why he related so much to the book. He probably knew guys like. The, the the characters in the book. I mean, hell, mo- a lot of the stuff with them and the bandits on the train in the beginning yeah. is like taken straight from his experiences of riding right. a train through Mexico and bandits started shooting at God. them. They started shooting back. And then like in the next town, they saw those bandits getting executed by the army. So, Jesus. I mean... I mean, yeah, this is also still the time of like, we're not too far away from the Old West uh, like weirdly enough so it's like there's still train robberies in yeah. like the 1920s when this story takes place so like it, it it's it's definitely one of those things i can uh, i can see why he is drawn to the story it has all those things that you, like you said tom that he's obsessed with he's obsessed with like character studies of these uh you know degenerate characters that fo- that like you know it's you absolute power corrupts absolutely any of those types of taglines that he's like uh, attracted to those types of storylines as a as a writer director and as an actor, yeah. Uh, and I think he's I, I think it is like kind of a, a very distilled like if you if you sifted through uh, the to to pan for the gold that is the pure ideas of John Huston, you'd probably get this movie. There's definitely like he's definitely got a bit of that thing that like. Peckinpah had later in his life of like looking at Mexico as like uh, a gateway to the past where things weren't as you know there weren't all these cities and the hypocrisy of the ruling class and all that and you know back back to nature and all that sort of stuff I mean you can live pretty cheaply too it's like appealing it's like to to be honest like it is really appealing as to like a young American man until you like you know what? until you actually live there and get there and it's not because it's obviously very beautiful but it's also like i was thinking a lot about uh this movie with um uh just how like the dobbs character like humphrey bogart's dobbs character is like i don't know if we're gonna if we should are, 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 uh, to like, just go straight into the into the in-depth analysis of the characters right now oh, or by, by all means 
But like the Dobbs character feels like the ultimate ugly American. Oh yeah. Like the the like type of guy that like but like you know, he's literally like living off other tourists. Like he's he's come to the country. We don't really we don't know why he's there, but I assume he's like a ne'er do well who's just kind of living hand to mouth and like he's an asshole. <laughs> he's like from start to finish, like a really terrible person, like a, just a bad guy. Oh, and yeah. it's, it reminds me a lot of like, like it's, it's not unlike an ugly American. That's like, it, it, it's a, it's a character that feels timeless. It feels like a modern character, like, a, like the, the xenophobic character, the guys you, that you hear today on the news. Like about just like about just like people coming into like you know our, protect our borders and then and then you'd like you know Americans started doing that like we were we were we were going into Mexico and like taking jobs away from people. Well, it's just like look at how he acts when you know they get all the money. I mean, he's yes. basically looking at the two men that worked with him to make to get all this gold, and honestly did more than him because he seemed kind of useless and had to yeah. really rely on Walter Houston. He's looking at them like, you guys are going to take all my money. Yeah, it's so funny how like useless and truly unnecessary to the whole plan Dobbs is. Like he's like he's just the third guy in the plan because he, he put in the money for it. But like Tim Holt, uh, you know, the character of Bob Curtin is – doing is like an honest worker he's like he's he's our he's the stand-in for the audience he's our uh viewpoint for the story and then walter houston's the old expert but then like dobbs is at every turn everything we learn about him is just a notch of like how we don't we're not supposed to like him he gets trapped in the cave and then like and uh timbold has to come save him he's like he mistrusts at every turn he like has something negative to say about every positive turn or anything, and and he's and he can't do anything. He no, can't he, do anything. He is a hundred percent, like you said, the kind of guy who would talk about people, you know, living off of, uh, you know, they want handouts, they don't want to work for a living, blah blah blah. But then you right, see right. him living off of handouts, but also taking those handouts and not doing exactly. the right, not doing the right thing with them. He's getting a haircut and a shave. He's going to a whorehouse. He's not actually yeah. getting. He's not eating. He's just living like a degenerate asshole. And, and then, he, and then he, then with all the money at the end, he looks at Walter Houston and Tim Holt as these guys that are holding him back. He's going to rob them that they're just kind of, yeah. they're hangers on where he's actually the hanger on. And right. You know, he, get, he, he sub, whether it's subconscious and like a, like a, sub, a subconscious awareness of his own insecurities, but he's, he's a, but he knows he's the weak link in that, uh, in that partnership. Oh yeah, I mean, like he, he knows, and that's why he's threatened. Well, because look, because when Houston they meet him for the first time, and he's telling him about you know the gold curse and everything, and how it'll corrupt right. him, he's very loudly like, "No, that's not going to be me. I know I'm going to make gold work for me. Gold's going to make me a good guy." And blah blah blah, very yeah. loudly, like every fucking jerk off today that thinks once they get money <laughs> they'll be they'll be you know they'll be one of those good rich guys. Well, you know we which exactly. And he's not. He sounds like he sounds like every uh, like right wing politician who uh, and and like and 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 we get, and we get that even like when we when we hear that monologue from Tim Holt about like what he wants to do with his share of the money 
about like growing a fruit orchard and like wanting to be like, you know, close to like, you know, relating his experiences, picking on the fields and like, 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 you know, I saw these families and we were all together and we sang songs and it was very beautiful. And then we see, and then like Humphrey Bogart's, all of Dobbs's goals are like, the first things we see him do in the movie like he gets like as soon as i'm as soon as like i'm gonna get money i'm gonna get new threads i'm gonna yeah. get like i'm gonna get like a shave like i mean he's literally like i'm gonna get a shave and a haircut he's like they're all frivolous they're all he's like wasting them he's wasting he's like gonna immediately waste his share and it's like i think there's a subtle thing going on here with the with uh tim holt and um humphrey bogart in that they never really get into their backstories or anything, but you kind of get the feeling like, oh, Tim Holt's probably kind of like the younger version of Walter Houston. He's just the guy who kind of is in a bad mm. spot right now. And if he just gets the right thing, he'll be okay. You know, he'll end up at a ranch somewhere and be like the number two guy or whatever. But where you're like, like, like casting Bogart, you get a very city feel from this guy. No matter what you, they, they don't tell us anything, but you get a sense. Maybe this guy got into trouble in New York City yeah. or Kansas City or Detroit or something. Right. And he or, had to run. Or Texas or something. Yeah. There, there, there is, you're absolutely right. There is a very real sense of danger with Bogart. He, like, <laughs> Tim Holt is probably down on his luck, but Humphrey Bogart is fleeing from something. Because like he feels like you would see him next to Roy Scheider in Sorcerer. You know, he's... Yeah. He's, oh, yeah. Oh, a hundred percent. He would be in that, like, jungle just trying yeah. to be like, yeah, of course, I'll drive this truck full of dynamite. Yeah, he's hiding if from the problem. Yeah, he, he's... He's not... He's a guy who can't get out of his own way. And, like, by ending yes. it with... Holt and Houston kind of, you know, Houston telling Holt, like, you know, you got to just laugh at this shit because, you know, and, and Tim Holt right. being like, yeah, it's funny. What, what the hell? Like, who cares? I'll go up to Texas <laughs> and find, uh, you know, I'll go find James Cody's wife and all that and help her out. Yeah. And help, uh, you know, wh why even get mad? Uh, whereas Humphrey Bogart, you know, even the thought of losing a, like a, an, an inkling of that gold sets him in becoming a, wide-eyed deranged maniac who can't handle oh, he's anything insane. yeah he 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 feels like he would be you know in a cagney movie which he you know as one of those guys who's just gonna gonna betray the gang to get his money you know so it's very it's like it's it's very uh late stages daniel plain view oh yeah and definitely. it's very uh like um I, I also think of there's there's um uh, this guy's Ray Had Jackson, that that the uh, Alfred Molina's character from Boogie Nights. Oh yeah, you know it's like is like that that's a character like that is like if Dobbs uh, makes it out of Mexico rich, yeah, like he becomes that guy. I like mean, he'd be like if he if he if he becomes like successful and wealthy he'd be like a maniac and totally insane. He's one of the guys in the Goodfellas crew that buys a fur coat after Robin Latanza. He's not. Yeah, yeah, uh huh. He's not smart. He's he would become new not rich smart. and not not old rich, which is again a subtle thing that feels very much in play with Houston's, I guess, clear eyed sentimentality of like the old ways of living, living off the land, and like the lack of civilization and all that. But without well, Houston's, yeah, without being like right. you in your face about it. no, no, yeah, but just it's it's like that subtle thing without ever beating you over the head with it the way like uh. You know, to it, I I think positively, Peckinpah does it in his movies, but this is very like using the casting to get that point across without telling you. Yeah, 
I mean, this is one of those rare things with like westerns. Sam Peckinpah can get like this, that. It, it it's this movie is surprisingly dark for like a Warner Brothers studio film from 1948. Like it's one of those oh, things. Yeah. Is like you know, like it's one it's one of those movies that you you from the 40s. It's like some some of these noirs or some of these like old films. Like they'll slip through the cracks of being like, oh, this is intensely dark, and like the sort like just from the source material, this. Nightmare Alley is the same is like just as is like just as if not more dark. Oh yeah, and it's because it's a, such a human story. Yeah, and Walter Houston's character is like a broken guy. Like he's in his fifties or sixties or whatever, and and you know living in flop houses in Mexico, just trying you know living off the land and just trying to like you know. He's and he's living the life of a migrant worker, and and he's uh, he's there's clearly this like he's seen things that have probably broken him many times over, and he's probably he's maybe he at one point in his life he was a Dobbs type. He he might be running from something too, but he's all but maybe he's like lived through enough hardships that it softened him a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, as an ad, like an almost an adverse effect of what it usually does to people. Yeah, it feels like you know, Holt and Bogart. You know, they could either become Howard or they could, you know, end up getting their heads cut off next to a dirty right. little pond in a mm. dead ass Mexican village, which is yeah, you know, man, that, oh, crazy. God. That's a crazy. That's like for like for for nineteen forty eight. That is pretty crazy especially because he shot it to be even more graphic which is again yeah. houston you're a fucking nut job and i love you but like oh god like where i would love to see the like non-haze code version of that scene like how fucking brutal they would go i would love it's to like because you know, like it's so it, the fact that it's humphrey bogart it's maybe the height of his stardom and he's not in the last 10 minutes of the movie spoiler alert for anybody listening Yes, yeah, uh, eighty years later. <laughs> I mean, that's crazy for a star. If he's the star, yeah, like he's not in the last ten minutes of the film. He's like his death is so unceremonious, and especially for like at this time in Hollywood and with his career in particular. But like right. those gangster movies were out of vogue at this point, kind of right. like the. Well, we got we can have gangster movies and Cagney's a big star in them, but he's got to die at the end because you got to have a moral code. Like he, mm-hmm. you know, he got started doing shit like that as the supporting guy in those kind of movies. Right. And they, you know, you you do research on it. He was trying to not do those things, but Houston sold him on it, and he said it was like the best script he ever read. So he's like, yeah, I'm definitely sure. like I'll definitely play this unrepentantly disgusting, just vulgar cretin who's going to die <laughs> 10 minutes before the movie ends because yeah. this is just too good to pass up. And like you, like you mentioned, this is neck deep in the Hayes Code. Like, this is 48. Mm. So they're filming it in 47 because Houston really took his time filming this movie to the to, <laughs> to Jack Warner's absolute fucking anger. Uh, sure. You know, nailed the budget up from what should have been an sorry, already insane, like, 1.5. I have yeah. been trying not to jump in. I have been letting you guys roll. But if we're going to talk about Jack Warner's response to this movie, can I please drop a Jack Warner quote? Sure. Yeah, of course. So Jack Warner was furious watching the dailies from this movie. 
Yes, he uh, was. He hated how dirty Bogart right. looked. He hated how it wasn't yes. coming together. His approach to Bogart was like, you always hear those stories of, of when Disney was watching the dailies of the first Pirates of the Caribbean, and they're just like, what the fuck is happening here? Nah. But the gr- best quote is that apparently there was so much footage coming in of the hunt for water that Jack Warner is quoted as saying, this son of a bitch better find water soon or we'll go bankrupt. And I just wanted to make sure that was on the record. Continue, gentlemen. I will I will not interject further. Well, I was just going to, like, just the point I was making, like, for a movie this dark in 48, that it was going to have, supposed to have, a, like, a $1.5 million budget, and then Houston just creeped it up into, like, $2.5 million, some reports saying $3 million. And the fact that it even, like, it didn't do well when it came out, but like Jack Warner, when it came together, he was like, this is the best movie we ever made. This is unbelievable. We need to. Sure. And it like, you know, kind of over time made its money back. But at the time it wasn't the biggest hit in the world because like, imagine like with three years after world war two and we're just watching and people are just like, I don't want to watch a movie, a two hour movie about just a bunch of dirty ass Americans just torturing themselves to get gold that in the end they don't get. And one of them, our main star, you know, the lovely Humphrey Bogart from Casablanca gets his goddamn head cut off. (laughs) Like that's like, you know, there's a reason why nightmare alley didn't fucking succeed two months ago because it's really goddamn dark and nobody wants to be wallowing in that shit. Sometimes it is that, that 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 is a very interesting parallel you just drew, and and I think it it, it speaks a lot because Nightmare Alley was my favorite film of 2021. <laughs> I thought that was like the film that kind of is one of those movies that I'm like, why isn't it? Why isn't it popular that people uh, won't accept that at any point you could become a geek? Yeah. Like you are everybody, every single one of us is this close to becoming a Dobbs. Like we could like lose it all at any moment and we could be like the ugliest versions of ourselves. And people don't like watching that movie. No, they don't like watching that movie. (laughs) I'll also say the other element of that parallel uh, for both films is that in both cases of Sierra Madre and the new Nightmare Alley, uh, it's very clear that the studio had no idea how to market the film. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Nightmare Alley, I mean, I remember, I texted Tom after I saw it in my uh, crowded theater of four people, and mm-hmm. saying, like, on the one hand, they did not market this well. On the other hand, I don't know how you market that movie, because you kind of, yeah, I don't know how to, like, they sold it to you like it's going to be all, you know, uh, carnival, uh, you know, sideshow stuff when it's definitely not. But also, if you start telling us what the movie actually is, folks can, you know, start putting together the pieces. With Sierra Madre, Warner Brothers had, again, did not know how to market this. Um, that's why the poster to this movie is insane. The poster, like, shows the 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 uh, the prostitute that walks by for five seconds. So that it can convince right. you that this is some, and there's a the man on the horse. They're trying to sell it to you that it's like a traditional western. They apparently, yeah, yeah. Uh, had Bogart. Uh, I they only flashed this in the documentary, and I couldn't find the original newspaper. It had Bogart marketing a line of clothing that tied into the oh. movie, like men's suits, calling them treasures. Like they had, and they emphasize huh. treasure, like it's a treasure hunt. Um, okay. and it's, it's so busy. Like they just did not know. 
And I think that's fair because Treasure of Sierra Madre is a movie where you're like, how do you sell this to people? Like, what is it? It isn't, yeah. It isn't quite a Western. It's not quite an action film, although it has elements of it. Uh, It's not like a noir, although it also has elements of that. Yeah, Um, yeah, it it, it is kind of a hard define like it is a hard sell i get it from a marketing standpoint i get it it's and, a, it, and, and again yeah. it is a dark movie oh it's, yeah. It's, yeah it's just like uh mike texted me before it's like it's it's almost like watching like the 1948 version of uncut gems or something where you well, just that's, the whole time you're just like i was yeah uncut gems is another movie i was thinking about this time rewatching it uh i was like wow yeah you could like and, and it's like it'd be really funny to hear the Max Steiner uh, score from this movie over uncut gems. <laughs> I And just like here, like the Adam Sandler, like, you know, do something like, I'm going to put $10,000 <laughs> on this thing. And then just. I said it to Tom because I was trying to explain, like, you know, I couldn't figure out for the life of me when I was about to revisit this before I revisited it. Like, why was it that I watched Maltese Falcon so many times as a kid? I watched Casablanca so many times as a kid. I watched all those Warner gangster movies as a kid. And I was like, I only ever watched Sierra Madre once as like a kid when I was watching these. And I was like, I wonder why that is. Did I not like it? This and that. And then watching it again for this reminded me why, which is I remember this movie as a, I must have been like nine years old. This movie freaked me out. It was, I I was so, I remember being, I was a kid, so I didn't understand the word anxious at that point. So I was just like, it scared me. Mm -hmm. But I just remember because this movie is a film and I used Uncut Gems as the analogy because much like Uncut Gems, this is a movie where they start out in a bad position and then it constantly gets worse. Mm -hmm. Like everything that would be the climax of another movie, right? Like a, a different film. It basically like a different like a, a movie that's tense that I could watch. Uh, the Oxbow Incident, right, is all about. Well, what do we do with these guys? This movie is the Oxbow Incident in its first act, and then it keeps getting worse for them. That's mm-hmm. what's so you know. That's what I think freaked me out so much as a kid, and that's why I use the the Uncut Gems analogy because Uncut Gems is another movie where it's not. Oh, this guy's in trouble the whole time. It's oh, hey. We're like halfway through. He made his money back. This guy's set. He's good. It's fine. And then he doubles down. And it's the same yeah. way. We're like, for the first chunk of this movie, you're like, are they going to find this gold? Are they going to, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the guy shows up. What are we going to do with the guy? And then you have the great, you know, obviously the the oft misquoted scene about badges happening and all of this. And it just keeps ramping up and ramping up so that what starts as like an adventure movie ends up feeling like a universal horror movie toward the end you know yeah, the, i mean he's uh, he's he's like the invisible man by the end just this ranting raving maniac talking to himself he's like literally incapable of executing tim holt who's like right in front of him he shoots him and just not, like barely does anything to him because he's just mm-hmm. ranting raving. oh they're coming for my gold oh they're coming for my gold and, and <laughs> until he's just got no other until even he has to realize oh I'm dead when the bandits are surrounded. I was like, there's no way out of this for me. There, there, there is an Adam Sandler and Uncut Gems element to him because he keeps making the wrong decision and every good decision that could possibly come his way, he immediately doesn't want to do it. 
and kind of has to be talked into it, like the, the lotto ticket, or he's about to fucking kill Walter Houston because he thinks he's leading him nowhere, but Walter Houston's about mm. to tell them, no, no, I found the gold. Relax, you fucking nut job. And right. just the whole time, he's doing the wrong thing. I mean, it's great. I, I mean, I it's just, this is one of those movies, man, where it's just like everything about it is great. Every decision was the right one. Yeah, everything, yeah, everything about it is great. It's one of those things that's like, it, it's affected culturally like its dna is in other movies oh yeah and and like like the just like the from the, the the misquotable lines or like uh just just the uh you know steak a fellow american to a meal just like all the all the like are you the, are the, you referring to eight ball bunny because i was going to bring up eight ball bunny yeah so, yeah that, that's the that's the cartoon right that's so, the, that's the one yeah they included that on the um on the dvd and I threw it mm-hmm. on because I wasn't sure, like, because I, I remembered 8-Ball Bunny just being a cartoon about Bugs Bunny and Playboy Penguin, um, who is one of, the finest, right. one of the finest Looney Tunes characters because his whole thing is he's a penguin in a top hat. We love it. And I, was, I had it on and I couldn't remember, like, what does this have to do with Sierra Madre? And then the running gag, the fact that it's not about the hunt for the gold, the fact that it's not the badges quote or anything, it's just that a running gag throughout this cartoon is that Bogart, a photorealistic Bogart, repeatedly shows up and does the line of, pardon me, sir, could you help a fellow American who's fallen on hard times? <laughs> and like the gag that they're 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 kidnapped by by people in the jungle and thrown into a pot they're about to be eaten and what scares them off something rustling in the bushes it's bogart showing up and asking for some money for having a hard time it is really funny those cartoons were like what seven eight minutes long yeah and they are so good at comedic heightening in the way where you for like i remember i rewatched that uh you guys because that you can find that on um you, you watch that short on hbo max and you forget that bogart's there when he comes back it's like one of those yeah. things like oh it's a great callback you forget <laughs> the day and it's and it's like seven minutes it's not long so you shouldn't really forget and it made me really think it was like it's a shame that the movies don't like that there's no studio system anywhere that movies don't work yeah. that way, that they don't like have cartoon, like there's no animation studio. I mean, now there is like just with like Pixar and Disney and stuff, but like there's not like a, like each, like they don't make shorts before movies yeah. and that, and, and in turn those shorts can't reference the movies. Well, it's also like one of the things I talk about a lot um, because I may, you know, one thing I have to explain to people uh, I'm I am a huge Disney history nut, and and part of that it's not because of just like oh I want to wear the ears and go to the theme parks, but they are the only studio that still has a very major studio that still has a very strong sense of brand identity and still references its history, and that wasn't always mm-hmm. the case. Like when we were growing up, like you know, uh, Warner Brothers had the Warner Store, and Warner Brothers made so much stuff about like. We're, we're so in on the magic of the movies and, and Warner Brothers history. And these discs we're talking yeah. about, like you used to, when they put out a movie or a box set, particularly a film, you know, they would not just give you the treasure of the Year, They loaded it with documentaries. They would do my favorite thing, which is Warner night at the movies where Leonard. Maltin yeah. Would give you like you were describing. Here's the newsreel that would have played before it. Here's the short. That's what, Here's yeah. The live act. When I, I had, when I was a kid, I had the, uh, uh, the, Warner Brothers Gangster Collection. Yep, yep it's sitting right uh, next was, to me. Yeah. 
with all of yeah and had all those had the, the newsreels the shorts uh it was like it really was a great feature they're li- great little features to have on those uh on the special features for a dvd because it's like it really it puts you in that time frame of like going to the movies and seeing this film and what the program was like and it's something we talked about recently in terms of we just did an episode on harold lloyd's the freshman and okay. how that movie is referencing a lot of pop culture of that time that like we don't get now uh, sure that, you know, yeah that, that you would have to have been there to get and i think that those looney tunes shorts really give you a sense of you can kind of get lost in maybe the myth making around certain movies where if you watch that Sierra Madre documentary, they kind of just go like it won Oscars, but it wasn't a huge financial success. And it's easy for us to translate right. that now as nobody saw it, but that's not necessarily true because it was well known enough that you could reference that scene and that line in a Looney Tunes cartoon and get a laugh out of the audience. You yes. know, it's still, it was still present and it was still a, a film that people knew and a film that was a gem in the Warner Brothers crown, which I think is right. so interesting. And, and, and like we've been talking about, it's one of those things like it's just different than the movies that came out from Warner Brothers in that time period. It's oh, different. Yeah. It was like, it's, it's different in Bogart's career. And even like, he was like, uh, like, like you were talking about earlier, Tom, of just like, he, this was a darker role than he was trying to get away from. And, you know, it's, I was just watching, I, I recently watched a movie he was in when he was younger, uh, called, uh, Brother Orchid. Okay. You guys, have you guys have, seen I that or not. talked about that? No. Okay. It's, it's him as the supporting cast, but it stars Edward G. Robinson mm. and it's a comedy. It's like a, it's a, yeah, it's like, it's a pretty straightforward gangster comedy, like with with EGR in the lead and uh, you know, Edgar, Edgar G. Robinson plays like a, a gangster. He tells his crew that he's going to leave and go to Europe and like, you know, try to get, try to get classy and whatever. And he comes back a couple years later and his gang has taken over the business. Humphrey Bogart, his former second in command now cop, now like, uh, you know, head, head boss is the, you know, head guy of his business, ices him out, and then tries to kill him. So uh, Edward, Edward G. Robinson hides out in a monastery. <laughs> that's that's so, I just find that interesting because I was thinking when you said Edward G. Robinson gangster comedy, he weirdly has several of those. <laughs> because It's, I mean, he played to his strengths. He's there, it's very funny. It, it has like really funny scenes in it. It's It's a good movie, but like, um, Humphrey Bogart plays the supporting and he's uh, a, a, a really bad guy. Like he's it's earlier in his career when he was mostly playing like the, the bastard, like the, the af the absolute shitty, the, the villain yeah. usually. I, I haven't seen that. I've seen the one that he did um, the year, uh, two years prior, slight case of murder, which is a different energy Robinson comedy. The other Bogart right. role that I think is interesting, and it's just because I've been on a kick of this lately, and it ties it around to this. Uh, the Bogart one I always think of, of like early in Bogart's career, even before he's the bad guy. Oh, no, it's it's around this time. Uh, a year before he makes that film, you're talking about Brother Orchid, he shows up as the playful best friend character in Dark Victory, the Betty Davis yes. picture winner. Right. And his co-star in that, the other friend character, is, of course, Ronald Reagan. 
right. Ronald Reagan, who was in consideration for the role that ultimately went to Tim Holt in The Treasure of the Sierra Madre. Oh, wow. There are so many almost Reagan roles out there. Uh, in film you know what? As, as much as I hate to admit it, I think Reagan might have been good in, in this role. <laughs> He's, I, I, I have to say, like, truly, and I've told this time I'm struggling with this a lot, in terms of actors, I, you know, when we talk about, like, having a problematic fave, you know, mm-hmm. there are so many times where, like, Reagan shows up <laughs> on something and I'm like, I mean, yeah, no, I get, like, you, you Iran-Contra was a nightmare and you're, you do just made things so much worse politically, but I really enjoy you in Newt Rockney. You know, it's a conflict. Um, <laughs> I mean... You know. It is. It is one of those weird things with Reagan because because his career is is laughable, but it, it's also fascinating. But it's you look at because I, I just watched the um the nineteen sixty three killers. Oh the, yes, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, that movie's to me was not as as not as good as I wanted as I as I I love the the the, the forty eight version the uh, of the uh, with Burt Lancaster. That's a great movie. I, but this one with with Lee Marvin and, and Clue Gulager, I was like, eh, it's okay. It's a little too violent. And and Reagan fucking slaps Angie Dickinson, and it's totally <laughs> yep. insane. Uh, <laughs> and it's 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 really it's really jarring to see just him being like, "Give me my money," and it's just <laughs> like, whoa. It's and and then so to picture him in this role and just kind of his like. You know, his kind of vacancy as a human being of like just the way he would say things is his just delivery of lines as a person. Just him being like, I'd want to go to pick fruit and I just can't <laughs> wait to get my share of the gold so I can pick fruit. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I'll say this for Tim Holt, who, by the way, I cannot say his name without wanting to do the Arrested Development gag. Uh, the Steve Holt, <laughs> but Tim Holt. Tim Holt. I feel. I feel, <laughs> I feel for Tim Holt because Tim Holt it was a low budget, like B movie western star. Right, he's in that mm-hmm. model of your Giorgio. He, he was not. He never reached the heights of. He he never reached the heights of maybe a Roy Rogers or or a Gene Autry or anything like that. But he was right. a B movie western star. And yeah. Uh, which I watched. He's he is he is exactly what you want. I watched um, his movie Thunder Mountain today. Um, it's like a one. I've hour been meaning movie. to check out his westerns because I, I just to be clear, I love Tim Holt in this movie. I think he's like a fantastic actor, and like his career is fascinating. As like you said, uh, Mike, of like just being uh, a uh, uh, like a western guy. Like he was like in all these like B serial westerns. And his his dad was also like a Western star who of, shows of up in that this film. Tradition. Yes, he's one of the I I forget who who he plays. He's but. one of the guys in the flop house with Walter Houston, uh, Jack Holt. Right. Okay. I I, sh- I should have looked out for him. I was curious to see. But what he uh, like. but yeah, Tim Holt is a fascinating guy. He's like one of these actors who grew up of westerns in the you know twenties and thirties. Uh, watching his dad in them and then like being like, I want to be that guy. And then became one of the best of those, but like, you're right. Not of a Gene Autry or uh, Roy or Will Rogers level, but then he gets cast in the Magnificent Ambersons uh, by Orson Welles and playing 
arguably like compared to the roles he had been like playing against type. Like he is a you know a dandy, sheltered, uh, possessive, spoiled, rich boy, and he plays he plays a guy who never looked like he did a day's work in his life very well. It's very surprising for someone whose literal job and ostensibly passion, as like reported by him, is to be like in pretty in these B westerns. They're not like they're not great. They're low budget. I th- I just th- I just think that's fascinating. He's so good as an actor, like above the genre that he's known for. Well, and then when he retired from acting, like not I guess not too long after this, getting stuck doing roles he didn't want to do, he became a rancher. He became a cowboy and owned ranches yeah. uh, until the day he died. Uh, also, don't want to burst the bubble here, but uh, Reagan was actually supposed to be was uh, Houston's choice for the James Cody role. Not Bob Curtin. Oh, really? Uh, oh, wow. Yes. Which, that, that makes sense. I could see that. That makes sense, too. I, I honestly, I don't think that really changes anything either. Like, the, the, this actor, um, Bruce Bennett, he does. He, he does a lot. He's, I, I like him, but yeah, he, I, I feel also. He does, he, I, I think Reagan could do it. Oh, too. I well, think because Reagan, be Reagan would. Well, because Reagan would make you really question if this guy's full of shit or not. Mm-hmm. Because that. Yeah. Oh no, Reagan would be. Would you would be a little bit more convinced there's an ulterior motive if it was Reagan as the cast. Oh, uh, yeah, we should also yeah. single out. Oh, sorry. Well, no. Who should we single out? Are we going to talk uh, about uh, our our favorite older man, our favorite older gentleman? Actually, before I got to that, I want to make sure we really single out one of the un- undersung performances in this film, which is Alfonso Bedoya. As, as oh, yes. Oh, just, is he gold? Yes. Okay. One of those, like, it's something when we did the Searchers last season, we talked about the guy who plays Scar and just how menacing he is. And there is something about, like, when Alfonso Bedoya shows up as gold hat and he's doing that whole, even when he's just trying to get the gun away from Bogart, right, in one of the early scenes. You're right. watching Bedoya, and you, I, at least for me, like you just get this feeling of like, I have never seen anyone like this before. Like his look, his persona, everything. You're just like, this is the whole. This is this is a whole thing. This guy, yeah, is he was really well cast. He's very, he's very real, and that's all. You know, thanks to Houston's just absolute insistence on filming in Mexico because he wanted those yeah. real lived-in faces and not just some guys from the Warner's lot that they throw some shoe polish on and say, uh, I, yeah. I don't know, try to do a Mexican accent. I don't know, do something. That, that, that's also like a really like breath of fresh air when you watch this movie because so many movies from this period, you can like, be, you, you're like watching, it's like, oop, uh, that's definitely an Italian actor in like uh, a costume, a very offensive costume. And this, and now it's like, when you have this, it's like, wow, they, they actually filmed in Mexico. They cast actors, they, they cast people, whether they be actors or like, you know, I think some of them were vaudeville performers. And uh, they, they, everything is authentic, authentic. And it adds to the realness. Everything, it makes you, it's, it's a better viewing experience. Well, yeah, and I mean, speak. You know, you mentioned before this. This movie doesn't feel like anything else made at the time. It's because I mean, one of the probably the biggest reason is that a lot of movies didn't film on location. I mean, some did. Yeah, but this was like one of the biggest ones to actually just like for the majority of the movie be an on location thing, which again made Jack Warner lose his goddamn fucking mind about the budget. But it added this gritty realism to it and bringing in the, these faces. You know. 
uh, uh, um, Alfonso Bedoya was a Mexican actor. He's not some guy they just grabbed, you know, on like I said, off the Warner's lot. And you know, all of the bandits were just a bunch of you know Mexicans from that village. And you know, apparently yeah. one or two of them were actual bandits and were not too pleased with an actor playing a bandit and uh, oh, bro- wow. bullied Alfonso Bedoya. Um, Damn. Uh, so it's just all of these things. I mean, we do have to say. I mean, other than uh, the little Mexican boy selling the lottery tickets, being a young. Oh player. wait, you're right. Damn, that is the thing. There is one. Ah, oh, yeah. there's <laughs> always one. There's, Ooh, there's there's always one. So but, before um, we, oh sorry, just uh, I want to make yeah. sure before we before we talk Oscars and let David go. Uh, as you were hinting at Tom, there's somebody else that we have to talk about. Um, who, fortunately for Tom and I, we get to talk about twice this season. Uh, because we also have Dodsworth this season. Um, a, a movie that uh, everybody's jumping at. No, one's, no one knows Dodsworth. Uh, but we have to talk about the Oscar-winning performance by uh, Walter Houston. Just want to make sure um, we oh, yes. talk about Walter. Unbelievable. I mean... John Houston saw his dad in this role. His dad didn't see himself in this role. He didn't want to be a supporting actor. He thought he was still a leading man. Which is insane. But <laughs> that's uh, crazy. You know, it, <laughs> it, Warren I mean, Beatty syndrome. But yeah, know. it's 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 insane. I mean, but he was so good and so into the role, and then you have John just so into it, and then just John and Walter's relationship led to um Humphrey Bogart fame, you know, saying, you know, jokingly, one Houston's bad enough, but two a murder. It feels so modern, a performance. Like, I feel like anybody that's ever been to a bar or has been to, like, a family <laughs> gathering where there's, like, older uncles that just, like, there's that one older uncle that's always got stories. He's the quintessential, like, I've seen things guy. Like, he's the guy, like, yeah, no, I've lived a life. I've got a story. Uh, you know, he's always laughing about things. And then when you actually think about the stories he's telling, you go, oh, that's an insane story you just told me. Why are you laughing <laughs> yeah. about this? You know, I mean, he, he, you know, he had him play the role with his top teeth out, which, you know, he, again, yeah. he didn't want to do because this was an era of acting where it needed to look good at all times. But it of just, course, yeah. um, you know, he says that the, the cackle and the little jig he does when they find the gold and then at the end mm-hmm. when they lose the gold is he, he basically took that from his life when a, Othello show he was doing in I think like 38 or 37 bombed so bad and he realized opening night it was going to be a massive bomb that he just had to laugh and dance about it because otherwise he would have fucking lost his mind Um, I mean it's just again like he's the character that these two guys could become Dodds doesn't Uh, um, Curtin probably is going to become since he survives and has enough sense of humor about it to laugh about losing the, the gold. Uh, he's a guy that's seen shit. You get that in him. He's, there's a, you know, he, he, he's definitely like, Oh yeah, no, I'll, I'll kill Cody. I mean, he's definitely <laughs> got that in him. There, there is that weird part of the movie when Cody comes into things. It's, it's almost like when, um, uh, Daniel Plainview's brother comes into town. <laughs> yep. It's just like there's just this weird like whoa what's the, this weird element all of a sudden it just layers things it just like makes things complicated suddenly like other characters start getting darker like you know they're they're like Bob Curtin starts like is like considering murder which is you wouldn't expect from that character 
he's good in a gunfight. You know, they get into two gunfights mm-hmm. in the movie. He's, you know, this is a guy yeah. that's lived life and there's so much dynamism to his character and Walter Houston just mm-hmm. expertly portrays it. And like I said, it just feels so modern that this character wouldn't be out of place in There Will Be Blood, like a movie you just mentioned. You know, he yeah. he, he feels just so... And it's perfect that he won the Oscar. I mean, he dies less yeah. than a year later which is, you know, a tragedy, oh, wow. but I mean, this is like, feels like a perfect capper for a career that, I mean, this guy was just great. And this role is perfect. He nailed it. And, you know, Bogart didn't want to be second fiddle, but he knew coming into this movie, he was going to get outshone by Walter Houston. And boy, did he, in my opinion, because now do you guys, uh, before, uh, like I, 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 hate to be i'd be remiss if we didn't talk about the writer or the author oh, yes, at all B. Travers. Like, uh, yeah. or B. Travers. yes b travers uh, travers I, I don't remember offhand or b, i think it's b travers oh, Tra- or yeah. b travers and he uh whom am i am i mistaken like nobody knows who this guy is no, right like he's no. his identity's never really been nope. revealed they, it's, no he's one, never no. been revealed nobody's ever met him they think people think they met him because his like a quote-unquote like i don't know book agent or some guy who was always like yeah, yeah. so i talked to b traven and he said uh, let's do this and I'm obsessed with this story. This is like one of those crazy stories of like, which is also why I think John Huston wanted to make this movie because it's, I totally understand if I, if I was a filmmaker at that time, I read this book, this book's great. Who wrote it? B. Traven. What do you mean? Nobody knows who this guy is. What? Like I have, I now that become that's the story. Now I have to find this guy. And John Huston like find, tries to look for this guy. And eventually, like, corresponds with, like you said, Tom, like his book agent or someone, and and they arrange for a rendezvous in Mexico. John Houston goes to a hotel room and then wakes up at some point in the middle of the night or or something. And uh, this guy, this mysterious book agent, whose name escapes me, I can't remember, like some pseudonym. And he says, "I, I represent B. Traven. And then they correspond, and I'll, yeah, and yeah, a lot of people think that that is actually who B. Traven was. And that guy, you know, is on, you know, goes to set, basically acting like the go-between for Traven. And yeah, everybody would know. Yeah. <laughs> He's giving story. Notes. Yeah, and everybody would just go up to him, and be like, "So, are you B. Traven? Like, what's going on?" Here? <laughs> and he would always just be like, uh, "I don't know what I, you're talking about," and just like run away. I am not B. Traven. I respond directly to B. Traven. B. Traven would like the, the to emphasize the death more. <laughs> like he would just completely go, yeah, like uh, just relay feedback. And I think that's a that's a very funny story. And and I want to see that movie in and of itself yeah that's, that's like a what like that uh what is it shadow of the vampire about yeah Nosferatu, but like about this fucking guy just like not admitting he's clearly the guy who wrote this book that everyone's yeah it has about. this weird level of like shadow of the vampire and being there where it's just like is this guy some sort of weird like idiot savant who's just like thinks he's fooling everybody well at yeah. the same time you know i you on our last episode uh we did together you compare on Maltese falcon you compared john houston to paul thomas anderson and another thing they have mm-hmm. in common is i'm sure a part of houston wanted to adapt this book so that he could be one of the only people to see traven's face the same way that you know 
when PTA actually got cleared to do Inherit Vice, he was like, I get to see, I get to see Pynchon's face now. I get yeah. to see it. That's uh, I, I I definitely think that's and 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 Paul Thomas Anderson is exactly the type of hipster director who wishes that he was a John Huston like oh, yeah. type that like went to Mexico and fought and like or like went to Spain and fought in the Spanish Civil War or whatever and like just lived that type of life and which is like I forgot what like I was listening to some podcasts and talking about like generationally filmmakers move in that type of rhythm where you have like guys from John Huston's era who lived very, you know, this is a generation of guys who, you know, went to war and, um, you know, had less conveniences in life that like they got to live rougher existences. And then as, and then you have later, like um, the Spielbergs who are educated in movies. And then you have the Tarantinos and the Andersons who are educated in even more movies. So it's just like a little bit more like people making movies about life and then people movie, making movies about people who made <laughs> movies about life and then so on and so forth. Uh, before we let you go, I do just want to make sure we always wrap up talking about the Oscars and this is a significant year. Yeah. Uh, Treasure of the Sierra Madre was nominated for Best Picture alongside Johnny Belinda, The Red Shoes, The Snake Pit, and the winner, Lawrence Olivier's Hamlet. Wow, that's a good year. Uh, it was nominated for Best Director, which it won. Uh, Walter Houston was nominated for Best Supporting Actor, which he won. And it was nominated for Best Adapted Screenplay, which it also won. So it won three Oscars. But here's a little trivia fact for you. Uh, John Houston actually directed two performers uh, into Oscar-winning roles that year. Because Claire Trevor wins Best Supporting Actress for Key Largo at this same ceremony. Oh, they came out the same yep, year? at least the same Oscar eligibility season. Yeah, this is still early on. So, wow, so Bogart was doing back-to-back Key Largo. What did he shoot first? Uh, I'm a, I believe Madre first. I think Key Largo comes along okay. later, but I'm not 100% certain on that. What I do know is Bogart was in Sierra Madre and Key Largo and got nominated for neither. Uh, obviously, Olivier wins Best Actor for Hamlet that year. Yeah. It's an interesting thing because, you know, obviously now you talk to a lot of people and they'll say, well, Sierra Madre over Hamlet. I think part of the reason Hamlet wins, part of it is obviously, you know, the reception to Madre, you know, and, and the time of war. But I think part of it, too, is don't forget that previously uh, he had done uh, Henry V, which was this right. massive achievement. Uh, that loses yeah. the best years of our lives. And this, the Hamlet win does a little bit feel like a makeup for like, you know, a little bit like when R- sure. return of the King wins and it's like, yeah, but this is really for all you're doing this same way. Like Hamlet winning is like, this is for all the Shakespeare's like, this is for Richard the third and Henry the or like, uh, or, or DiCaprio winning best actor for the Revenant and being like, you probably should have won this earlier yeah. for something else. But, like, you're not going to get another one as you get older, so we're just going to give it to you now. Uh, but, yes, like you said, David, very good year. Um, obviously, we all know the Red Shoes and Hamlet. Uh, I've watched. I mean, imagine going, like, like leaving the theater of Sierra Madre being like, wow, that's great. I got another four hours to kill. I'm going to go. Uh, I have 15 more cents. I'm going to pay and see Red Shoes. Or, 
and then be like, wow, like from black and white to stunning yeah. technicolor. And then like Johnny Belinda, which I watched recently, I was telling Tom about, is a movie that like for the first half you think, I don't want to you know give too much away, but for the first half you think it's like, oh, this is some quaint Oscar bait thing about, uh, mm-hmm. oh, local uh, doctor teaches a mute girl sign language. And then the second half is like, well, the mute girl is raped by her sister's husband, and she's got a baby, mm-hmm. and the town blames the doctor. And you're like, holy shit, this is dark. Wow. Like, it's... I didn't know that. I haven't seen... I haven't seen Johnny, Johnny Belinda, Belinda and Snake Pit are both, like, real dark. So Snake Pit, yeah, Snake Pit's yeah. great. I, I, uh, that's that is a great year for movies. The only other last bit of Oscar trivia I want to throw out that I thought was fascinating from this year is that uh, one of the nominees for best original song is the Woody Woodpecker song. It is the only time that an animated uh, short receives a nomination outside of its category. It receives a nomination for best original song for the Woody Woodpecker song. I thought that was a fascinating. That's movie. fascinating because I can't recall what that sounds like off the top of my head it just does woody woodpecker as beloved as he is no no disrespect to to woody fans but like he's not iconic he's he's faded a lot unless you go to south america where apparently woody woodpecker is still immensely popular so that's a, that's a that's a fascinating study as a lot there's a lot of bird characters uh animated bird characters that are very popular in south america i'm not sure no but it is it is interesting like david points out like because then you watch like Three Caballeros or, uh, you know, Saludos Amigos, and they throw in an obnoxious woodpecker character, which seems right. like them taking a jab at Walter Lance, who created Woody Woodpecker, but also kind of stole Oswald away from Disney to begin with. So it's a weird, complicated saga of cartoon birds. Interesting. Well, um, how yeah. about this before we say goodbye to David? Uh, one little, one last Oscar trivia that uh, John Huston's the only filmmaker to mm-hmm. uh, direct a parent and a child to an acting award at the Oscars. Right? Yeah. Because oh whoa, uh, wait, who, which which of his kids did he direct? Angelica Houston and Prizzy's Honor won Best Supporting Actress. Prizzy's Honor. Yeah. Gosh, that's that's another thing. John Huston has a Hitchcock level filmography. Yeah. Oh yeah, like that guy made like what thirty five movies or something. Like it's insane. Well, I mean, it's like he went from nineteen forty one in the Maltese Falcon, and his last movie's nineteen eighty seven, The Dead. Yeah, and you know he, he was born in that's nuts. That's he was born in nineteen oh six. Like he he yeah he lived a life. You know, like the only other person I think that can that maybe has a longer filmography is Eastwood. Who's another one of those types of guys? The thing you yeah. said about the dead Tom throws me just thinking about the fact that John Huston directed a James Joyce adaptation in the 80s. Meanwhile, John Huston was alive while James Joyce was alive. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. Like he, a lot of like he like you know he he directed Wise Blood in 1979 and like I think he I think he lived yeah. before he's 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 older than the author that wrote the Truly, book. Truly, like John Huston may well have been reading the early strips of Annie and also yes. directed Annie. That's like yeah, I mean I don't know how many other directors have that type of longevity and he also part like was able to have an acting career on the side yeah. which is insane oh yeah 
Yeah, the guy was unbelievable. We are very lucky to have him, and we are very lucky to have many of his movies in the film registry. And I also have to say, I'm very thankful for uh, watching Five Came Back on Netflix, and when they go through all of the mental trauma that all those directors went through from going to World War II, and then they get to John Huston and basically go, yeah, he stayed the same. <laughs> I mean, like, oh, so, uh, one more little thing in, in connection between Houston and Anderson again. I also love that Five Came Back documentary. Uh, and I, one of the movies that uh, Houston made while he was, when he was making, uh, when he was making those propaganda war films was uh, Let There Be Light. Yes. Was uh, like, which is a series of interviews at an army uh, medical hospital talking to soldiers about what well, it wasn't called this, but it's essentially it's about PTSD. And it's talking to soldiers about their experiences with battle and their, uh, I, I think they call it mental fatigue. Like just the stress of uh, being in war and like what it does to you. Like what like hundreds of days of combat can have as an effect on the mind and uh, Paul Thomas Anderson pretty much used most of the scenes from that as the basis for the beginning of the master. Yep. Uh, And we will, uh, we will get to cover let there be light in 20 seasons. (laughs) So we've got a ways to go. Got in the national film registry in 2010. Wow. We've got a while. Um, David, thank you so much for joining us. I, I really appreciate you coming back. Uh, I really yeah, appreciate all your film knowledge. Thank you so much, guys. It's been blessed. Do you have anything you want to plug on the way out? Any social media, upcoming stuff, anything? Uh, yeah, you can follow me on uh, Instagram at BelovedBot and uh, on Twitter at BelovedBand. Um, be on the lookout for a show called Jigsaw that's coming to Netflix that I make a little appearance in. Uh, and then, yeah, and uh, uh, Kip Jones in Space, a podcast uh, about a 1930s detective stuck in the future. Well, thank you, David. Thank you so much for joining us. And everybody else, stick around because we'll be right back with our picks for the National Film Registry. The National Film Registry isn't some fixed object, frozen in time. It's always growing, adding new titles every year. These annual selections are made by the National Film Preservation Board with members like Martin Scorsese, Alfre Woodard, and Leonard Maltin, and representatives from organizations like the Academy, the DGA, and the AFI coming together to debate and decide. But they don't just pull titles out of thin air. They pull from the public, people like you and us, who can submit their nominations for the registry in a form on the Library of Congress's website. What we do, at the end of each episode, is have Mike and Tom pick films not yet in the registry that they feel should be, inspired by that day's topic. At the end of each season, those films will be formally submitted to the National Film Registry for consideration on behalf of your missing out. Here are today's picks. So I was thinking about it, and, and obviously the crux of Treasure to Sierra Madre is greed and the unique kind of greed inherent to American capitalism. Uh, and then on top of that, I was thinking about the fact that this doesn't just revolve around greed. It revolves around a trio of different characters, right? And you have Dobbs, who is pretty much a, a bastard from the start, but because he puts up the stake, because he's got the right idea, uh, everyone's willing to follow him, even though he ultimately brings about ruin. Uh, you have the sort of bright-eyed young optimist in Tim Holt's character, uh, and then you have kind of the elder statesman 
who is a, a smaller role but a much more memorable performance, really pops. And I, I started thinking about how that very same dynamic uh, and this trio uh, corrupted by greed uh, exists again uh, in a much more recent film examining a much different uh, pursuit and, and pursuit of wealth. Um, I kept thinking of uh, David Fincher's The Social Network. In that film, uh, you have Jesse Eisenberg's Mark Zuckerberg is the Humphrey Bogart character, is the guy who, from the start, we know is just a piece of shit. But, you know, he ultimately surrounds himself with these people, leads them on this journey, and, and, and leads them all to misery. Uh, Andrew Garfield's Eduardo Severin is kind of the Tim Holt of this group, the, the one that you kind of root for a bit, uh, but is still corrupted uh to some degree or another and of course timberlake sean parker is in a way you know the same kind of elder statesman uh that walter houston's character is kind of coming in and trying to offer some wisdom and trying to be like i've been through this before and it ultimately uh, goes awry i mean the social network is easily one of the best films of this new century that we're in um arguably this new millennium that we're in um, it is a film that has gotten much more potent and resonant in its day, much like Treasure of the Sierra Madre. Um, it was uh, heavily favored at the Oscars, but because it was so dark and grim, uh, lost to a uh, stuffy uh, film about royalty. But I, I think, you know, it's certainly something that's gotten you know, from the score to the performances. This is something that that has always deserved to be in the registry. And I think is something that all of us have thought at various points uh, should be in. So, you know, it's no surprise. It it just was a matter of which film, which episode we, we mentioned it at the end of. But, you know, its score, its script, everything about it is just perfect and has become uh, so much more relevant now. I remember when it came out, uh, one of our professors in college went, yeah, I don't know. I, I, that doesn't deserve any awards because in 10 years, who's going to care about Facebook? And here we are. Uh, 12 years later and oh my god you know it's 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 unsettlingly relevant so uh i truly believe uh the social network uh one of the defining films of our time uh, david finch's social network uh, absolutely should be in the national film registry uh so for my pick i'm gonna go with one that feels like a direct descendant of this movie um it takes more of a thriller form and is not and it's a very compact tight movie it's not a epic but it's just as epic in its filmmaking and it is just so effective and it's just as richly realized and realistic and gritty and just the filming locations were just insane and the filming process was even crazier i mentioned it before i think it's uh, sorcerer should be in in the film registry it's I mean, arguably Friedkin's best movie. Uh, it might even be. It might be better than Exorcist. Ask me to, on the on a, any day, and the answer might change. But it's it's an amazing movie. It's a nail biter. It's kind of a perfect movie. Uh, it definitely feels very much attuned with Treasure of the Sierra Madre in theme and in character. Um, it's a much more dour movie, but I think it's just as equally riveting and expertly uh, uh, executed. Yeah, I think uh, I think Sorcerer is a pretty good companion to this movie, and I think if we're gonna put anything up 
that's uh, close to Treasure of the Sierra Madre. I think this is probably the closest uh, you're going to get. So, Sorcerer. No sorcerers are in it. <laughs> Let's all go to the lobby, lobby, lobby. Thank you again to David Bluff Band for joining us. Next week, it's All Quiet on the Western Front with Action for Everyone co-host and returning guest, Vice Victus. Don't forget to follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you again next time. Here on You're Missing Out. They honor movies of historical, cultural, or aesthetic importance. On the National Film Registry.